Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. question that history is written in hindsight. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't write history in real time. So let's, uh, let's have a quick conversation this morning about what this era, era, what this era, era is all about. So there's a scene from uh, a television series that I watched back in uh, the very end of, uh, of 1999. And then I don't know how many seasons it ran, but it's called The West Wing. And if you were to rewatch The West Wing, which many, many people do on Netflix now, if you were to rewatch the initial season, season one of The West Wing, which aired in the fall of 1999, first of all, I think your first thought would be, oh, how nice and how um, archaic, <laughs> how, qu- how quaint, how quaint. Um, there was no real time access to information globally. Uh, they had to wait for. Um, satellites to be repositioned over certain places to get real to, to get what were then you know six hour old pictures of things so that they could see what was happening. Um, there you know they were using these giant clunky desktop computers. It was uh, it, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting look back because we're only talking about twenty years ago, twenty years ago. But there's a um, there's a scene in the first season of The West Wing. In which Sam Seaborn, who in the uh, in the drama is a speechwriter, but he's also an attorney. He's a very accomplished guy, um, and he says they're having a conversation about making an appointment of a justice to the Supreme Court. Now that's a conversation that we have today, and we think, oh, you know, this is a generations. Um, uh, this is a decision, you know, that changes the course of a generation. It's about you know the way that American jurisprudence is understood. I mean, like we have a much more robust understanding today of just how important it is to make a transition on the Supreme Court. But, you know, that was something that, you know, the American populace maybe was not particularly familiar with. And so they introduce those kinds of themes in this show. So Sam Seaborn says, it's not just about abortion. Talking again about the appointment of, an, of a justice to the Supreme Court. It's not just about abortion. It's about the next 20 years. In the 20s and 30s, it was the role of government. In the 50s and 60s, it was civil rights. The next two decades, that would be today, by the way, are going to be about privacy. I'm talking about the Internet, which, of course, was kind of an unknown thing at the time. I'm talking about the Internet, he says. I'm talking about cell phones. Again, brand new technology at the time. I'm talking about health records. Uh, I'm talking about who's gay and who's not. And moreover, in a country born on the will to be free, what could be more fundamental than this? This is a, it's a conversation about what will the big debates be 20 years from the making of this show. 
So there are many things that would um, surprise the characters of this political drama, even though it's only two decades old. It seems quaint if you watch it today. But the question about the fundamentals for a country born uh, on the will to be free is a good conversation. It's a good conversation for us to till over and over and over again. We are still litigating questions of the role of government as we face riots in some of America's largest cities and teachers unions who don't want to go back to school um, and don't want anybody to go back to school in any other way. Um, uh, we are talking about, you know, outmoded forms of things and the role of government in those things. We're certainly talking about the role of government in terms of health care. We're also talking about civil rights in a way that we were not talking about civil rights in 1999. And Sam was right. We also face critical questions about privacy, government intrusion, data mining. Uh, Screenwriters in 1999 could not have dreamed of what we're dealing with today. Um, But I do think that it's curious that the issue Sam first mentioned is the issue of abortion. And it still looms large. Why is that? It's because if you're wrong on this one issue, you cannot be right on a number of other issues. And so if you imagine that another person's life, another person's right to live is within your personal power to control, then you don't only imagine yourself to be autonomous, you also hold other people as things and their lives and their life as utilitarian. So Sam Seaborn was both right and wrong in 1999 in the West Wing. 20 years in, privacy is a huge issue for us, but so too are civil rights, the role of government, religious liberty. But over them all remains one critical concern. It influences every other conversation about who we elect, And that concern is the concern for life. Who ordains it, who creates it, who has the authority to end it, who governs it, and who governs each breath along the way. So if you're trying to articulate to your friends and neighbors why every election is a one-issue election for you as a Christian, well, you can start and end with the conversation about the right to life. Because without the life conversation... You can't have a conversation about liberty, and certainly not one about the pursuit of happiness. All right, next up, Ben Johnson. He and I are going to talk about taxes and other things. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. He tweets as the rights writer because, well, frankly, he's concerned about our rights. Ben, welcome back. Good morning. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you, too. Okay, so... Um, we are going to be talking over the next several weeks about elections mattering as people are making their decisions about how they vote in local elections, how they vote uh, in terms of national uh, political conversations that we're having. And we talk frequently about the fact that elections matter because the people who we elect then make laws, at least if we're talking about members of Congress. And so even though this call for a billionaire tax is not going anywhere in the current uh, in the current environment because we have a Senate where there are a majority of Republicans who would not affirm it, and we have a president who would veto it if it ever got that far. But talk with us about this call for a billionaire tax that's now alive again 
in the Democratic-controlled House. And the Senate as well, by the way. Uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, introducing a new bill called Make the Billionaires Pay Act. He had an op-ed in the U.K. Guardian uh, just recently talking about the fact that during this lockdown, billionaires have made billions of dollars. Uh, 467 billionaires have made $732 billion since the coronavirus lockdown. And he says this is morally obscene when uh, so many other people are struggling economically that a tiny handful of billionaires uh, end up making money off of a global pandemic. So he says the most uh, morally righteous thing that we can do is for the government to take that money back and to take it back retroactively. Uh, he was, he, he's introduced a bill called the Make Billionaires Pay Act, uh, which he's introduced along with Senators uh, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, who ran for uh, president this last time out, and Ed Markey, uh, which would impose a 60 percent tax on every dollar that billionaires have made retroactive back to March 18th. So that's that's the bill that's before us. Uh, he says that it's morally wrong that uh, these individuals have made money. But if he wants to know why they made money, he might want to look around at his fellow politicians. Of course, the reason that these billionaires have made money, and he singles out a couple of people like Jeff Bezos of Amazon and the Walton family of Walmart. But there's a specific reason that those people made so much money, which is that we're in the middle of a, a, a pandemic lockdown where so many of their competitors were put out of business because of the government forcing people either to close their businesses or scaring people to the point that they were afraid to go to their local store. And so they only order from Amazon. So if, uh, it's a perfect example of the government causing a problem and then seeking to, um, uh, to come up with another way of getting even more money for the people who caused the problem in the first place. So, um, you know, there are some people who have just become billionaires. And so, you know, one wonders uh, if you became a billionaire during um, the last few months, you know, are you swept up in this tax act? Like there are, I mean, I know that maybe sounds like a ridiculous question, but um, Kanye West would be on that list. Um, there are others who have, you know, become first time billionaires or billionaires for the first time. Um, and we're not talking here about people of one political persuasion or another. Uh, and so I do think that when we're talking about the billionaire class, we're not just talking about Republicans or Democrats. We're talking about people who are uber wealthy um, and who could uh, make their own decisions, in fact, do make their own decisions about the reinvestment of their wealth. Um, and so when we this is this is like the government saying you can't you're not allowed to be that successful. We're going to if you become that successful, we are going to seize your wealth because we don't think you can use it as well as we could use it um, in terms of moral distribution. I, I find that kind of offensive. Well, good points uh, all the way along. You know, George Soros, Warren Buffett and uh, Jeff Bezos are not conservative Republicans. Uh, the billionaire class, as you say, is politically divided along uh, all kinds of lines. So you know, Andrew Yang and others, these are not people who are, who are necessarily rock-ribbed conservative uh, country club types. And on top of that, as, as you say, you know, they, there's a reason that these people have made the money that they have during this time, which is they're offering something that people want. Uh, the unprecedented uh, kind of ease of access that Amazon gives us to products from all over the world at uh, rock-bottom prices that can be delivered to our door overnight, and Walmart and others are competing with that. Uh, all of that uh, has been the reason that people have turned during this time of a pandemic when they're 
afraid for health reasons to go to a store and to handle things that have been uh, touched by uh, others throughout the community during a time where we thought that that was the prime way that the coronavirus was transmitted. So I, I think that there's this, it, there's a reason that uh, the money has been flowing the way that it is. But for uh, Sanders and others, all that they see is an increasing pile of money. Uh, and the left is always concerned with redistribution of wealth. There's no interest in the creation of wealth. Wealth is created when people take a chance, when they offer a product or a service, and people want it and reward that with their, with their money. And so either it's the market deter- determining who, whose product should be rewarded with cash, or it's the government saying, uh, essentially uh, enforcing an eminent domain over cash, saying that we can use this money better than you can uh, because we're morally superior to you and to the people who've given this money to you. Mm. All right, you and I got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, let's uh, let's visit this question of Biden and religious freedom. Um, I think that's an important question for us to address. And then I really want to get to the piece that you have posted at Acton right now on uh, the the lawsuit against the NRA and the rule of law. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson, you can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also find him tweeting as the rights writer. Um, Let's talk about religious freedom. There are those who think Biden is uh, strong on this topic, and then there are others who would define religious liberty or religious freedom protections differently than the way those who um, suggest Biden is, uh, is good on this. So tell us what this conversation is about. Yeah, the uh, head of uh, the Latter-day Saints uh, Democrats for America committee, a man by the name of uh, Rob Tabor, is defending uh, Joe Biden, saying that he's very strongly committed to religious liberty in the same sense that uh, basically Barack Obama was, in the sense of freedom to worship, that uh, he has an interest in defending uh, uh, places of worship against attacks and things of that sort. Uh, He wouldn't go in and close down churches and so on. And that's more or less the case that he's making to uh, people of faith, not only Mormons, but others in uh, traditional evangelical and Christian and Catholic and uh, other circles around the country. Uh, More or less, that's the case that Biden is making, that he will defend our freedom of worship, which Barack Obama was committed to. The issue is that uh, while Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president, you had an attack on Uh, the owners of Hobby Lobby trying to force them to pay for abortion-inducing drugs. You had multiple lawsuits against nuns because they wouldn't provide contraception to employees who did not want it uh, as part of their uh, HHS mandate. And you had an administration that was supporting the Equality Act, which would uh, amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act for sexual uh, orientation and gender identity. Uh, now, of course, that's actually been done by fait accompli uh, through the Supreme Court now. But that's the, the key that um, when the gay marriage case was being argued before the Supreme Court, the late Antonin Scalia said this could deprive any any church or any religious institution that holds to traditional morality of its tax-exempt status. And that very well could be something that we see moving forward, particularly if you had a, a keen prosecutor who was interested in pushing that legal case and had experience doing so at the state level involved in your administration. 
Yeah, there's no question that the uh, the history, um, the track record of the Obama-Biden administration on issues of religious liberty is pretty deplorable. And I would say uh, would be the would be the conversational talking points that I would surface if anybody wanted to suggest that Joe Biden was going to be um, an advocate on the religious liberty or religious freedom front. Um, the other super interesting thing that I frankly I became aware of in reading this and and exposing uh, or reading this series of articles actually. Um, is that there are these really narrow coalitions out there. There's these very discrete groups of voters, in this case, you know, Latter-day Saints. Um, but uh, I, I have been surprised to learn, and maybe this is just my na- naivete, um, that there are some very targeted efforts toward discrete vote, what are, you know, understood to be voting blocks. But if you're Mormon, if you are a, a, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, your morality does not line up with the Democratic National Committee's platform. Uh, nor any traditional uh, religious bloc, whatever, whether it's evangelical, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, essentially any traditional expression of Christianity would uh, not be able to uh, give its imprimatur to the uh, DNC platform, which continually moves farther and farther left. Uh, in matter of fact, several uh, bishops of the Catholic Church have said this is completely uh, incompatible with our doctrine, uh, although Biden uh, likes to profess himself as a, a very strict believing Catholic, when it comes to his public record, his public record doesn't line up with his rhetoric. Yeah. All right. So this is going to be a storyline we're going to continue to watch unfold. Those are some First Amendment conversations. Let's get to a Second Amendment conversation. The National Rifle Association uh, is, um, well, it's being targeted. Tell us what's going on there. In uh, the National Rifle Association, of course, the largest guns rights organization in the entire country, is based in New York State. It was founded there 149 years ago, and it's never changed its address. The uh, current attorney general of the state of New York has filed a lawsuit to dissolve the NRA. And what she's saying is there are four officials who have uh, allegedly uh, done nefarious activity over several years, ended up depriving the NRA, which is a nonprofit, of $64 million for themselves and their families, according to this court filing. Now, whether that's true or not, uh, you and I don't know. But uh, this, in order, uh, in order to uh, capitalize on that, she's saying that she wants to close the NRA. Uh, by the way, Tish James, uh, Letitia James, is the same attorney general who closed uh, Donald Trump's private foundation. And it it seems that uh, really the facts of the matter almost beside the point. In order to dissolve a private charity or a private nonprofit, usually you have to meet a very high standard of corruption. For example, there was a case in Ohio uh, where the current governor at that time was uh, state attorney general, closed down a charity that uh, only had 2% of its funds that actually went to the charity. Others where they masqueraded as the United Way or other charities those charities, quote-unquote, were closed down because they were purely fraudulent from top to bottom. That does not apply to the NRA. It's 150 years old, five and a half million members. The problem with the NRA is its political standpoint in the very liberal state of New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo has said, if you support the NRA's agenda, you are not welcome to live here. Uh, If you support the Second Amendment or the right to life, or you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, as he said several years ago. And so now they're acting on this. And to try and politicize and uh, end people's ability to join together in associations freely uh, goes against the constitutional right, which is a freedom of association guaranteed by our founding fathers that uh, you and I don't have a great deal of ability to affect the national conversation. You certainly do through your microphone. 
But uh, in terms of real concrete uh, action, we have to join together with other people because we are not the elite. We are not the people who have access to the halls of power. And so when we join our voices with others, then we amplify that. And this has been a problem going all the way back uh, to uh, the 1830s and 40s, where uh, Tocqueville talks about that. In my piece at uh, the Acton blog, blog.acton.org, I quote Tocqueville uh, talking about how the government likes to dissolve nonprofit associations and uh, free associations even back in the uh, mid-19th century. So this is not a new problem, but it's one that's encroaching on both the First and the Second Amendment rights. Uh, so just for those of you who are listening out there and happen to be M- uh, members of the NRA, apparently the attorney G- attorneys general of Texas, West Virginia uh, and uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson have all already invited the NRA to relocate to their state. So it does look like it has uh, it has a future, just maybe not a future in the state of New York, which has become inhospitable to its presence. It's these are interesting times. Uh, ben Johnson, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. want to uh, commend to your reading, if you're listening right now, Ben's blog on this topic, you can find it at blog.acton. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. It's entitled New York AG Takes Aim at the NRA and the Rule of Law. Thanks, Ben. Thank you and God bless. You too. We'll be right back. All right. The question of rights and the conflict between those who perceive themselves to be somehow losing their rights as others are perceived to be gaining rights that have previously been denied to them. That's a huge conversation that we're having today um, in America. We're talking about civil rights protections. Um, now, those uh, there are protections that have been extended by the Supreme Court in 2015 through something called the Obergefell decision. That's, uh, you know, you and I would sort of describe that as the legalization of same-sex marriage across the country. But in a recent decision called Bostock, uh, the Supreme Court has also interpreted the word sex in the 1964 Civil Rights Act to now be comprehensive and inclusive of, of everything in the LGBTQ lexicon. That is now beginning to impact uh, businesses and um, and certainly government agencies. Anyway, on and on and on. So um, we are going to talk about how this has happened because the religious views on uh, on same-sex marriage, on homosexuality, have shifted very dramatically in just the last 15 years. We're going to talk with researcher Ryan Burge um, from Religion in Public about that shift and what he sees taking place now and maybe next. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Studies show that kids who grow up in the church are actually abandoning their faith in record numbers, especially when they hit the late teen years. Why is that? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. As you know, our world is changing. It's no longer socially expected to attend church. Your teen hears anti-church messages all day long. Expect difficulty when you value something that the world doesn't value. Avoid the temptation to mock or berate your team as they strive to establish their own spiritual convictions. And by all means, keep encouraging your kids to pursue the truth, to connect with other Christians. And remember, there's nothing more winsome than a mom and dad who truly loves God with all their heart. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
Ryan Burge is a pastor. He is also the assistant professor of political science, as well as the graduate coordinator at Eastern Illinois University. He teaches across a variety of areas, including American institutions, political behavior, research methods. Um, His research focus is largely on the interaction of religiosity. That's actually how you and I practice our faith and political behavior, which isn't how we talk, but how we actually vote and behave as political beings. All right. So um, his context is America. And so we're talking with him today. Ryan Burge, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Good morning, morning. Carmen. Glad glad to be with you. So I want to talk about um, what I'll just describe as uh, the shifts that you have observed in America's moral landscape. And when I use moral landscape, I'm talking both about uh, religious conviction and practice and then how that bears itself out in uh in our life together as a you know as a body politic yeah absolutely i mean the biggest one to me the biggest bellwether change we've seen in the last 30 years is the issue of same-sex marriage i mean people don't remember this but 15 years ago the state of texas had a proposition two which enshrined the constitution of the state of texas that marriage between, was between one man and one woman passed with 76 percent of the vote in 2005 that's only 15 years ago Today, two-thirds of Americans are in favor of same-sex marriage, and, by, and from 2015 forward, same-sex marriage has been the law of the land in every state in the United States. I mean, it's a rapid change in acceptance of same-sex marriage just in the last 10 or 15 years. Public health or public opinion folks just don't see stuff like that, so it's, it's really amazing it's changed so quickly and in one direction towards the more liberal direction. So, um, you know, as a person who uh, came up in mainline Christianity, you know, I can point to the years like 1993 to uh, 2001 um, as really the time period when at least the the Presbyterian Church USA um, robustly engaged in this debate. And then between 2001 and 2011, so in that one decade, a mammoth shift took place. And we went from uh, a 75 percent vote to affirm that marriage is between a man and a woman to completely reversing that and becoming a denomination that affirmed same-sex marriage and affirmed gay ordination and on and on and on. So just in just to use as a microcosm, you know, my own personal experience in seeing a moral landscape shift among a religiously convicted people, supposedly. Right. So I I experienced that shift in the matter of one decade um, in in the PCUSA. And what you're pointing to is that same shift has taken place. Uh, among those who would regard themselves as religious Americans, um, you know, in maybe since 2007, is that sort of a you look at 2007 to 2017 as a decade of sort of major moral shift? Yeah. So 2004, support was 29.6 percent. By 2010, it was 46 percent. It jumped 10 points in two years and then didn't jump 10 points in two more years. So it went from 46 percent to 66 percent. Between 2010 and 2018, I mean, that's one in five Americans essentially changing their view of same-sex marriage in an eight-year window, which is just something that we talked about is completely unprecedented in American public opinion. If you look at things like abortion, abortion opinion today is basically where it was right after Roe versus Wade in the mid-1970s. If you look at things like pornography, the sale of pornography like in grocery stores, the support level there is basically the same today as it was 30 years ago. I mean, this is really one specific issue when the public as a whole – has liberalized. And and here's something even more interesting. It's not just the public as a whole. 
even younger evangelicals now, for uh, 54.5% of evangelicals under the age of 35 now support same-sex marriage, or at least in 2018 they support it. We have to think it's gone up from there, so it's very likely that 60 or 65% of young evangelicals today support same-sex marriage as well. All right, so I guarantee you, Ryan, right now we have listeners asking themselves, okay, how does that happen? How how does a uh, a body politic that once viewed marriage as one thing move so quickly to viewing marriage as something else? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting uh, way to think about this. Okay, so for when I grew up, I was I went graduate high school in two thousand. I was thinking back when I was in high school, I did not know a single person who was out as homosexual when I was in high school. And now looking back on it and following people on social media and things, I know at least six or eight people who are gay now who did not come out as gay when they were teenagers, but probably knew they were gay. Today's young people are living in an environment where they have friends they know who are gay and are out about that. So what happens is this. You know people who are gay, so it makes you more tolerant of that kind of behavior because you think to yourself, oh, I know my buddy Brad, and Brad's a good guy, and but just so happens that Brad's gay, but I don't think Brad's any worse than me, and I think Brad should have the same rights that I have, so Brad should be able to get married. So the more people that came out, it made it more easier for other people to know someone, not just a, a generic idea out there in the ether, but someone I know personally that I like, that I love, that I'm close to. If they're if they're gay, they can't be wrong, and so therefore I have to be accepting of same-sex marriage because I want the same rights for them as I have for myself. And you, you use a word um, in that conversation that I think is really critically important, and that's the word right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are people who have this conversation as a rights conversation, and there's other people who have this conversation as – Um, a definition of marriage conversation, and they don't view it as anybody's right to change that. And so um, I do think that there are two levels of conversation that take place, and sometimes people talk past one another because one person is operating out of exactly the position that you just described, which is, hey, everybody has the right to be happy, and therefore, you know, marriage seems to make some people happy. It also seems to make other people very unhappy. But anyway, um, <laughs> if uh, if in the pursuit of happiness uh, someone decides that they want to get married, then they ought to be able to marry whoever they choose, whomever they choose, that that ought to be a quote-unquote right. That's one side of the conversation. I think that there are others, including myself, who would you know view marriage as something <clears throat> instituted by God and therefore defined by him. And we do not have we don't really then have the right to redefine that. I recognize my position is increasingly archaic in terms of uh, the conversation of the day. But I would articulate my position that way to a person who wanted to have the rights conversation because then I would have the the authority conversation. Sure. So there's an issue here of what the law allows versus what morality allows, right? So maybe I'm in favor of the state allowing same-sex couples to get married, but I don't like the idea of homosexual sex, for instance. I looked at that in the data trying to figure out what percentage of like evangelicals were in favor of same-sex marriage but opposed homosexual sex, and that was only 13% of evangelicals. So that's really like – I know those people seem very vocal, and I hear a lot of them, but there's actually more evangelicals who are in favor of same-sex marriage and homosexual sex than are in favor of same-sex marriage but opposed to homosexual sex. So really that's not a majority position for any religious group in America today. The only group where it shows up a lot is with black Protestants, uh, and one in five black Protestants is in favor of same-sex marriage but uh, is morally opposed to homosexual sex. Most people fall either in favor of both or opposed to both. They don't really kind of divide it up based on morality versus legality. Because we know what married people do. 
<laughs> I mean, I I'm, think that. Okay. Yeah. No, I think you're right. There's a there's an incongruence there, right? I think it's a lot right. of like trying to slice it a little bit thin, right? Trying to get yeah. around, you know, like creating a theological loophole for yourself. You're like, well, I'm okay yeah. with it in this instance, but not in this instance. The reality is that most people don't hold that loophole, but it does. It does has a. It seems good from a PR perspective, but in reality, most people just don't don't think that way. All right. I am going to continue my conversation with Ryan Burge in just a minute. Um, religion in public is the way I would describe what he does. You can find him at ryanburge.net. Um, we're going to continue this conversation. I'm going to ask Ryan up next, um, you know, because I feel like sometimes you can frame a question to get the answer that you're looking for as a researcher. I'm going to ask him about um, how to trigger certain responses or if that's happening in some of these conversations um, about homosexual uh, practice and marriage. All right, that, that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Berg, you can find him at ryanberg, B-U-R-G-E dot net. Um, all right, Ryan, I, uh, I I actually teased this question poorly a moment ago. Here's what um, here's the question that I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to ask. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like the use of language and how a question is framed triggers me to respond in a particular way. So if you were to ask me as a researcher, if you were to ask me, is it OK to deny service at a lunch counter to anyone in America? I would say no. But if you yeah. ask me. Is it okay for a Christian who owns a graphic T-shirt printing company to deny to print T-shirts that have some, you know, male-on-male graphic sexual content? I'm going to say yes. So my first answer is guided by my conviction that all people are created equal as image bearers of the living God. My second answer is guided by my conviction that the Christian who happens to be in business is first in business to glorify God and should not be compelled to use his business uh, to do something that is— you know, completely contrary to his religious convictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've uh, you've hit on the the thing that people who don't write surveys don't think about too much, and that is it's incredibly hard to write survey questions in a way that are unbiased, that are straightforward, that give enough information to the respondent, but not too much information that tries to bias them in, in toward one direction or the other. And all these scenarios have all this nuance to them, right? Like, for example, we know that respondents oftentimes will be more likely to extend Christian religious freedom, but they're less likely to extend religious freedom to, let's say, a Hindu or a Sikh or a Muslim. So it's it's very, very difficult to write a question about anything, really, that, that hits all religious groups in the same way. For instance, you know, like, how often do you read your Bible? Well, if you're a Muslim, you don't read the Bible. So, you know, we really can't judge you against that kind of question. There are all these nuances when it comes to asking questions about difficult stuff like rights, where if you just include one word or take out one word or add some context, you're going to get a completely different answer. That's why we have to be super careful when we hear polling data about questions that are difficult. We really need to see how the question is asked to understand how people responded to it. And just changing one little thing can give you a, a much different response. All right. When you think about the research that you're doing and the questions that you're now asking and the landscape, you know, you're you're looking at the landscape. Most of us are just like looking at the grain of sand that we happen to be standing on at the time. Um, And so when you look at the landscape ahead of us, are there shifts that you see taking place now? And if so, you know, what what are those? So the biggest one I see is the evangelical church is really going to be boxed in in the future. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but, you know, 
I think two thirds of young evangelicals are in favor of same sex marriage, and they know that the church they go to is you know does not permit same sex marriage. The other issue is the issue of female clergy. Uh, we know that over 80% of young evangelicals are in favor of women preaching from the pulpit on Sunday morning. I mean, that's a huge majority. Actually, majorities of all ages of evangelicals support women in the pulpit. And only 8% of young people in general are opposed to women preaching on Sunday morning. So if evangelicals want to want to grow or even want to maintain the size they're at right now, they're going to face an audience who is very much opposed to their positions on women in leadership and same-sex marriage. And I think for a lot of young people, those are issues that are deal-breakers. They're not going to go to a church because they like the, the smells and the bells, the sights and the sounds, the music and the fellowship, if they can't agree with them on things like same-sex marriage especially because they have friends and family who are gay. So I think evangelicalism is going to run in this collision course where they're going to have to try to navigate the reality of, of theological fidelity, you know, sticking to that conservative theology they've always had, or are they going to grow? I don't. I think those two things are mutually exclusive going forward. In evangelicals, a lot of churches are going to be at crossroads about which direction they take. Do they want to try to still be attractive to young people and bring in more young people, or are they going to stick to their guns and you know be what they are theologically and maybe get a little bit smaller? All right. So, um, Ryan, we probably have time for one more um, question. I actually am super interested in the manuscript that you have posted on your website on conflicted partisans. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that's under review and we're going to get to see it published somewhere. It is under review right now. It's been under review for eight months. So hopefully someday it comes out. Okay, Okay. because we need that. Because let me tell you, I know a lot of people who are conflicted partisans. Mm hmm. Yeah. So a conflicted partisan is one like, for instance, that that paper is about people who are Republicans in identity, but do, do did not vote for Donald Trump and do not approve of his job performance. Uh, this was in 2018 data. So it's not a huge number of, of Republicans, about 10 percent, but they do exist and um, they are still Republicans, but they just don't like Trump. Yeah. And we and we know some conflicted uh, Democrats who they don't you know, they don't support their party's position on life. Um, or on abortion um, because they're pro-life. And so they're conflicted partisans, you know, in the other direction. And so I just uh, it's a it's a really fascinating conversation. And there's a push pull there that I think um, each and every one of us has in our own lives. And so I just I appreciate that you're researching it. I love the sure. stuff that you're doing. I love the energy that you bring to the conversation. Thank you so much for um, for doing what you do every single day and including us in the conversation. We really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That's what I do it for. Glad you guys can learn from me and understand the world a little bit better. Just love it. All right, you guys, you need to go to his website, Ryan Burge, B-U-R-G-E dot net, because he's got a ton of really good papers posted there, some of which um, are easy to find in circulation, but all of which you can actually read right there on his website, which is really cool. All right. Thank you, uh, Ryan, and we'll be right back. Thanks, Carmen. Okay, I want to just pause briefly here. And have a conversation about the metaphor, I think it's a metaphor, uh, that you have operating in your mind in relationship to culture. So when you think about culture, when you think about the culture of which we are a part, what is the metaphor? What's the operating metaphor um, in your mind? Is it a battle battleground? Culture, there's a culture war and there's a culture war taking place on you know, on the battleground that is before me every single day. If so, then you're going to enter into those conversations um, looking for an opponent to slay. So I just think that that's important to recognize. If war and a battlefield is your view of culture, then that is going to influence how you approach the conversations of the day. 
others uh, have as their metaphor uh, a river, you know, frankly, a kind of a lazy river. Um, and so if you've ever uh, been in a lazy river, you know, you just float along with the current as it rises and falls. You're just along for the ride. You are moved forward by an by a momentum that you don't control. You don't perceive yourself to be influencing it. And sometimes every once in a while you'll fight against it because you hit a patch of rapids where you recognize uh, this cultural river is headed toward a waterfall um, over which, you know, culture is going to um, descend and crash to the bottom. All right. So. Maybe your view of culture is a river, but you don't really perceive yourself as uh, geared up, armored up uh, to battle against anything. And so you're just really going along for the ride, swept along by the rising and uh, rising and falling currents uh, of the culture of the day. Uh, Maybe you view culture as a garden. This is my view of culture. All right. So I look at where God created us to live. He created us to live in a garden, and he created us to till it, to plant the seed of his word, to be a people who flourish, to be a people who um, invest and reinvest and uh, and seek to grow, even in days that are dark and hard. All right? So uh, if you, with me, view culture as a garden, and you don't like the fruit being produced by the culture of the day, then you and I need to get busy planting the good seed of God's word in the culture where we live. We need to till the soil. We need to remove the rocks. We need to plant the seed. We need to be people who fertilize and encourage the growth of good and godly fruit in the culture of which we are uh, a part. All right. We got another hour up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.